Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Big Footy Off-Season Podcast. I'm, of course, the Wookiee, and I'm talking today to Peter Holden, who is a commentator for girlsplayfooty.com. Uh, g'day, Peter. Uh, g'day, Wookiee. It's uh, great to be uh, on this podcast. And, of course, every now and again, people might find me under the pseudonym of Crowded House whenever they're looking through bigfooty.com. Excellent. Uh, Peter, just to uh, get started, I mean, women's footy is taking off around the country in a big way now. There's a lot of promotion going on. There's a lot of media going on, which uh, is kind of unprecedented for the women's game. Um, how do you see the game at the moment? It's it's in a very interesting state. At the moment, the spotlight is on the fact that women are playing football but the problem that I've been talking about, and I've been talking about it for the last oh, six or seven months via our website, has been we seem to be kind of stuck in novelty mode at the moment. And that is everyone's excited about the idea of women playing football. And, well, if you believe the AFL, women have been playing football since 1915. And the, and the most successful league, the VWFL in Victoria, has been running since 1981. So people are now excited that, oh, yes, women are playing football, but no one actually knows who these women are what their history is, and, and that's a bit of a problem. And it's with this new national competition that's about to come along, we've got to get past the hurdle of women are playing football into, well, who are these women? Who are the stars? And who will be watching and paying interest in? It's, a, it's always baffled me a little bit that the AFL, with all the money and resources it has, I mean, it is by far the richest of the national competitions in Australia. It is by far the greatest access to resources and probably the greatest government support of, of any sporting competition in the country, and yet uh, uh, organisations with hardly any a fraction of those resources, like uh, the NBL, the uh, the cricket, the um, the soccer, they all have national women's leagues, and yet the AFL, no, just nothing. <laughs> I, I think it, it first came down to the bottom line. I think uh, the, the a Women's National League, as far as I'm told, was kind of mooted around about 10 years ago. But you've got to think around that time, around 10 years ago, clubs at that stage uh, had their, uh, particularly a lot of Victorian sides in the AFL, had their reserve sides. The reserve sides, they didn't know how to market or, or, or run correctly, and the reserve side was a burden and losing money. And In fact, on some of those occasions, the reserve sides melted away and amalgamated with the old VFA clubs. So you had that situation. It was more around cost-saving and everyone trying to save money. And this is all pre the TV deals coming along, when the big money started to roll in, when we started talking about billions that media organisations would pay for TV rights. And all of a sudden, particularly like with the Slater's deal, $2.508 billion, it means that essentially for all 18 clubs, they're, at least in the uh, medium term, their future is secured. So they can, dare I say, uh, splash out a little bit on their um, reserve grade sides. And now there's a bit of extra money in the pot to be able to look at women's. At the same time, um, recently with the FIFA Women's World Cup of Soccer, uh, we've seen that women's sport presented correctly can actually draw in a reasonable size audience and advertisers are, are noticing that. And football, I think, has just clicked now that, hang on, soccer's moved to that market promoting it, cricket's investing if we don't, women are going to switch to those sports, switch their interests, switch to playing, and thus the advertising corporate dollars go that way. It's interesting because I was uh, talking this morning to uh, AFL Queensland's women's program coordinator, um, Bree, and she was saying that they were actually having Matildas turn up for footy training up there. 
Yeah, it's an interesting thing, including uh, Mackenzie Arnold. Um, according to my sources as well, um, Mackenzie Arnold was actually a uh, undrafted emergency for the uh, Melbourne Demons for the TV exhibition match they held last year. There was a, I think there was a niggle with one of the players that they were a little bit worried about. And if there was a last-minute withdrawal at Melbourne with two or three days' notice, they were actually going to fly in Mackenzie Arnold from Queensland to play for the Demons. And that would have set the cat amongst the pigeons, I think. You would have had Mackenzie Arnold and Brianna Davey. There's two Matildas players you would have had on Eddie Had Stadium, which certainly would have got some attention. Mm, I'm, I'm almost surprised they didn't try it. <laughs> at, at, at the same time, like you mentioned those names, at, at this moment, if you, the tug of war going back the other way, uh, Emma Carney, star footballer for Melbourne University, played for the Western Bulldogs on Eddie Had Stadium in the TV game, currently at the moment playing for the Melbourne Stars in the Women's Big Bash League. Mm. So let's uh, let's let's have a quick run through where we're at state by state at the moment as as we look around. I know you're a, something of an expert, if I may use the term, on Victorian women's footy. How do you see that going at the moment? I mean, they've got a, a ten-team state league that is supposed to start up next year. What, uh, well, the, well, this is one thing I'll stop you on straight away. This is probably the uh, little bit of a VFA supporter, I guess, coming in me. Yeah, the VFL always had the VFA always had the hatred of the VFL AFL. Um, when I keep hearing this uh, terminology of new state league, new state league, it's not really a new state league. It's actually a rebranded Premier Division. Okay. Um, essentially, it's the six teams of the Premier Division uh, taking on board what were the top four teams from. Division One. As I uh, put in a recent article, I asked the question, I go, if this is a new state league, what was the Victorian Women's Football League? A theatre production? Of course not. It was a state league. It's all of a sudden like the VWFL is now being downplayed when in reality it's the same teams, it's the same players. I think it's more that it's now being directly aligned to the VFL. And that, and this is going to prove interesting. Uh, the fixtures for that is due out in uh, January. Um, and, and it'll be interesting to see what they do because uh, all these sides, I think excluding North Geelong at the moment, or they're being rebranded as Geelong Magpies, uh, all of them have a uh, second team. Um, and in years gone by, it would have been traditional that you had Premier Division, Premier Reserves. Uh, but they're now scattered amongst uh, divisions. So you're not going to have like you used to have um, where you'd be at your home ground, your reserves play before your Premier Division mm-hmm. side because they're now being weighted about how good their reserves are. They'll end up in different divisions and, well, um, you won't have two ga- two games on at the home ground at the same time. And they're talking about having the seniors, the first they'll play in this quote-unquote new state league, as maybe being curtain raises to the VFL. Now, that's all well and good to try and get exposure, uh, but it also presents a bit of a problem. Um, for example, if you're Darabin, you're Darabin, you're playing Diamond Creek and you're scheduled to be the curtain raiser at Preston. The Northern Blues are taking on the Box Hill Hawks. Uh, the problem is, who gets the gate? Who gets the canteen? Who gets the bar? Well, that's, that's a good question. I guess they'd have to work that out. Exactly. And that's the problem, that these women's clubs, aren't go- if they're not getting a percentage of what's happening here, they're essentially playing at a ground, a home game, where they're earning nothing. In fact, they're losing money. You've got to think about the resources it costs to pay the umpires, get the footballs, etc. If you're not playing at home, even though, let's be honest, some of their home games, the crowd's maybe 100 and 150. At least that's you know money coming over the bar and ways to try and help pay their insurance, pay their rent, etc. Um, if they're putting this state league in, there has to be some money pouring in from the top down to compensate these sides playing at those grounds. It's not like if these sides were 
women's sides were officially part of the VFL club, where, okay, then everyone's sharing the costs, everyone's sharing the burden. If you're playing away from home, how do you make the money to keep your side on the park? I wonder if it's more going to be more of a you know use of training facilities and coaching access. That could be one thing as well. Um, we, we're already seeing it where they've got the TAC Cup Academies now. They've got the women aligned with that. Geelong Western, um, Sandringham Dragons, uh, for example. I think North Ballarat Rebels have got uh, a camp going up there at the moment. I think everyone saw that was coming, and, and that makes makes logical sense. But, um, again, it, it poses a problem. You've got your state league side and your reserve side. You have all of them training at a VFL ground, or they all training at home. And again, it poses the question, like with any sporting side, even when you're training at home, there's a good chance you're having your selection night at home and you're having your meals and drinks. Again, it's money over the bar at your own club. Any time training or matches that you're away from home, you're not making money to cover costs. In fact, you're losing money. So tell me about the State Academy, the Women's State Academy that's currently underway. I know they've done... uh... They've had a bit of a session at Icon Park down at Princess Park at Carlton there, and they've, they've had one at uh, Tullamarine at Essendon. At Wendy Hill, and I believe they're supposed to be doing some work as well with uh, the Western Bulldogs and Melbourne as well. 109 players uh, invited. I believe there's been as many as 80 on the track, and they've also got a separate rehab group. And what the rehab group is doing is obviously those that can't run around, be ankle injury, knee injury, whatever it might be, they're still doing a lot of ball skill, a bit of gym work as well to try and get those players um, up to scratch. And there's a lot of them as well. I mean, for example, Tiana Ernst, that ruck woman for the Melbourne Demons who normally plays with Diamond Creek, who um, uh, did her kidney in that match and um, couldn't exercise for three months. She's there at the moment in the rehab group trying to get her fitness up again, and uh, hopefully she'll be out there at the uh, start of the next season. There was Cecilia McIntosh, again, another Melbourne player. She did her knee in the first quarter on the MCG game back in May. Uh, She's one of those which I believe it's either the middle of this month or early next month that she's going to start running again, and she's been doing a lot of rehab work. She's in that group as well. She's a former... uh, um, uh, Commonwealth Games medalist Javelin and uh, did bobsled at the Winter Olympics. So she's a multi-talented uh, sportswoman, and uh, I think she's—you know—I hope she doesn't mind me giving her away. Right, she's about thirty-six, thirty-seven, but she's having a real crack and hopes that she's going to get selected in twenty seventeen. It's time starting to run out for some of these ones that have been uh, around for a few years now. So you'd, you'd hope it really is closer than than uh, further away. Well, that's one thing we challenged on. Um, we challenged in an article after the uh, women's exhibition match saying that, that Gillian McLaughlin kept saying, oh, I, I hope for 2017, I hope for 2017. And after the TV exhibition match, he says, oh, it's looking more likely. But no one has actually said yet, rock solid, guaranteed, this is the start date and the start year. We're all hoping for 2017, but as one article alluded, I think it, I think it might have been in the Geelong Advertiser, but correct me if I'm wrong, they think it's all based on the um, if, if there's going to be some type of TV broadcast arrangement signed, whether the AFL's paying money or they're getting rights for it. Most important thing, they want this competition on TV. Um, that's, I believe, one of the sticking points. And the, the point that we argued, we said they've got to name a date because there's a lot of women in their mid-30s who now have to make a decision. Are they going to stick it out to play in 2017? Only if they get the one year to play, but at least to say they played in the National League. Or if it's going to be delayed, at least they know and at least they can make a choice of, I don't think I can get my body up in that year, but I now have enough time to switch to a coaching role. For example, uh, Tanya Hetherington, 
who um, did an injury, I think it was a knee in the preliminary final uh, of the VWFL this year um, as part of her process um, because she's got a long way to go back through rehab. She's taken up a coaching role at Diamond Creek. She's now their senior coach in what will be the new state league. So, um, again, she's one of those that are smart enough to have a bet each way. She's good enough as a player to make the National League, but if the body doesn't hold up or the body's not right in 2017, she has the option of going down the coaching path. I do think it was. Um, I, I do think there's a difference between Gillan McLaughlin saying he'd like something done by 2017, and it actually getting done by 2017. Although it does seem like it will happen at this stage. Well, yeah, it, it seems more and more likely. I, I guess the things that, that everyone's frustrated about is we're not seeing, at least publicly anyway. We don't know what's happening behind closed doors, but at least publicly seeing. This will be the date, and let's backtrack. This will be the date. This will be when the first preseason training starts. This will be when the first draft starts. If they're having, we don't even know yet if it's going to be a draft or a zone system. Nobody knows. Um, and, and then backing up uh, here in 2016, there's going to be some interstate games or national championship games to give um, uh, recruiters a chance to have a look at the best of the best. There's none of this plan rolled out yet, and I think that's what everyone's frustrated about, that this competition, in theory, if it started March 2017, is 15 months away, and yet no one knows what the exact roadmap is. I don't think everyone wants the exact minute detail, but we kind of need an idea of what is going to happen when. Hmm. All right, let's move on to... Uh, well, actually, before we move on, the uh, just about every club in Victoria, every AFL club in Victoria has now put in an interest for a uh, women's com- uh, a women's team in a new competition. Who do you think is going to end up getting those teams? It's very difficult to tell, to be honest, um, because we keep hearing about this bid process and it's been trickled out and it's been very, very good PR here because if you notice and if you read between the lines, all this all of a sudden everyone's interested happened around the first weekend of the Women's Big Bash League. So it was kind of a bit of an AFL tactic to try and dampen down the excitement around the WBBL and say, hey, we're also a women's sport as well. So it was very good PR. But the problem is about this bid. We keep hearing sides of bid, sides of bid. The AFL actually hasn't put out, which I believe they should put out, what the criteria is, what are teams bidding for. We should be knowing that they want teams that can either A, are in this financial position, or B, offer these facilities, or C, are going to spend this much on coaching. You know, it's kind of like these teams are putting their hands up saying we want a women's side, but we don't know what to judge the criteria on. If you look at it in one way, you could go, okay, the Victorian clubs, you'd say, okay, Melbourne and Footscray, the Western Bulldogs, because they have put in the hard yards early, the first three years of the women's exhibition, and they should be uh, rewarded. Um, some are arguing Essendon Carlton because at the moment they're offering training facilities. But the situation with Essendon Carlton is I think both of them might have lost money. Uh, it reported their last AGM over the last financial year. And they're both, if you look at a senior men's environment, both at the bottom of the ladder, and both have turned over coaches. So you've got to ask the question, well, are they exactly the best environment to start a new women's team in? And then you go to the other side of the coin. You go, well, should we put maybe one in Hawthorne? As in Hawthorne's, uh, you know, three times in a row, premiers. They're going along great. 70-odd thousand members, money in the bank, new facilities opening at Dingley. He got the resources to burn. But on the flip side, okay, will they be too dominant? Well, you know, we can't catch Hawthorne men. Now we won't be able to catch Hawthorne women because they're so far advanced. So uh, this is the problem that we don't know what criteria and what, the AFL want to judge as 
as the best clubs to take on a women's team to start this competition. I think the danger in, in basing it on any kind of financial criteria is that several of the teams that are likely to be involved aren't the best performers financially in the first place. And I, and I speak as well as an Essen supporter. I, I believe at the moment we shouldn't have a, wi- a women's side at this stage. I, I definitely want to see an Essen's women's side at some stage down the road. But if someone asked me now, have one now, I would say actually no. We shouldn't have one for maybe three or four years because let's be honest, this Asada mess that's hanging around us like a bad smell. It's like we've got issues to deal with. We should be dealing with that first, cleaning out our house first and saying we'll have a women's side but we'll catch you a little further down the road. So let's move on to uh, Queensland, which has the largest female participation of any of any other the states in Australia, including Victoria. And, and they run it well. Craig Starsevich down there has been absolutely sensational. Was rewarded with the gig at the Western uh, Bulldogs women's side, and those two thrilling matches and the style and professionalism that he goes about it has been spoken of highly, including for the first time ever, uh, Queensland were in Pool A of the National Youth Girls Competition and made the grand final and gave Vic Metro a very good run for their money, even BWA for the first time. So the Queensland girls that are coming along have been developing sensationally. And they're not all just based around Brisbane and the southeast, around the Gold Coast area. Um, there's Shalice Law, who came out of the uh, Toowoomba Tigers, a uh, sensational youngster coming through. Uh, uh, Talia Randall out of the Sunshine Coast. A couple of girls coming up from uh, the Townsville region as well. So they're, they're evenly spreading the talent, which is fantastic. And, um, and they've built the system right. They've got their own version of a state league, the QAWFL. Yeah, sorry, yeah, that's right. The QWAFL is their version, which has got about seven teams in it at the moment. And then they've got the uh, Queensland Women's uh, uh, Amateur Football Association underneath. So um, you've got, obviously, the girls that are you know hoping to try and make a, a national level and those that are playing a more social game, playing underneath the new clubs being introduced. So they've seen they've got the system worked out there. And, um, yeah, all credit to Craig Starsevich, Brianna Brock, and all the crew down there. And, and as well, they've got some great managers like Jeff Newman up at AFL Mackay as well. Originally started out in the Darling Downs region. He's got women's football growing better in regional Queensland than those down in Victoria have it, got, have it going in country areas down here. So full credit to them. The Girls Play 2 campaign that they have running there and have done for a couple of years now seems to have been... A tremendous success. It has been, and um, at the same time as well, you've 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 got to consider that when mums are looking at sports, comparing rugby league versus uh, versus Aussie rules, they look at rugby league and they go, "Oh, geez, you know, should my girl be playing that? Getting bashed around, running into bodies." And they look at Aussie rules as something like, you know, a lesser of two evils. Uh, if so be it. But but this program started around about, oh, geez, a, a good 15 years ago. I remember working in uh, Queensland all the way out in Charleville back in 2003, and I met one of the um, AIS coaches that was working with uh, the, uh, the then Football Federation Australia um, uh, before they became the FFA. And she's talking about the resources soccer, rugby league, and Aussie rules are spending, particularly in the developing states, Queensland being one of them. And uh, in 2003, uh, she's, she's gone to me saying, oh, look, you know, soccer's pretty under-resourced. She's out there doing a clinic and they're moving on to the next town. And she goes, the NRL uh, back in 2003 in Victoria had one development officer for the entire state. Uh, she explained that AFL at that stage, New South Wales and Queensland, had 20 and they were all running around and pouring resources in there, teaching kids, teaching kids. Now, you think about that, that those kids that are playing Auskick, those development, they were 18, 19. They're becoming women now 
that are 17, 18, 19 years old in Queensland, that 10 to 12-year program is now paying the dividends. That didn't happen overnight. No, the uh, program in New South Wales started in 1997. Mm. Uh, the AFL launched a big push there after the Swans made the grand final in '96, And the Queensland one started when they overhauled uh, AFL Queensland, which was mm. uh, something else back. But uh, uh, yeah, they overhauled yep. that. In 99, I think, 98, 99. And, and, they... and, it, and it was perfect timing as well because that was, particularly in New South Wales, that was when the Super League wars were around. Yeah. They really did take advantage of that as best they could. Um, moving into New South Wales, obviously, next uh, next target there. Uh, 41,000 girls apparently played across NAB, uh, Auskick and school programs alone. Uh, 3,500 women in clubs in New South Wales and the ACT. And it's two-division uh, competition in Sydney to begin with. Um, a few of the uh, usual suspects around Sydney Uni, Newtown Breakaways, for example. The moved clubs like Southern Power, Wollongong Saints, upper division into Division 1. Um, they've been struggling this year, but I guess that's more a longer-term view that they're looking at because you can't have a 4-5 or five team top division. You have to bring sides along. Uh, division 2 has been a resounding success this year. Uh, Blacktown Magic made the finals. Um, I think they're a predominantly Indigenous club. Uh, they they virtually uh, sprung up this year. Um, it's it's times they've been playing with only fifteen and sixteen girls in the park, but still winning games. They had something like a run of about I think it was something like eight or nine wins in a row, which was uh, fairly impressive for a um, new club. At the same time, the Auburn Giants I think finished the year at the top of the table. They were going great. Didn't get the chocolates in the end, though. Penrith was up there in Gosford, which is great to have developing areas such as out in the west with Penrith and and the Central Coast. That that shows great growth. And I know Gosford uh, are very keen at looking at going up to Division One, and I guess being the club on the Central Coast to uh, be in that uh, Division One competition. At the same time, uh, this year they started up the Black Diamond AFL. Uh, that's named after a former sporting trophy in the area. And uh, that is the Newcastle region. And I think they had seven sides, if I'm correct, that uh, started this year. So, that, And they said that was a resounding success. Newcastle City Blues taking the flag there. They've got a great youth girls happening around the Central Coast and Newcastle area. They've even got uh, women's competitions happening out in the Central West when we're talking about Dubbo Orange Way. Uh, also, um, women's football happening out in Broken Hill as well. So, again, um, unlike... Victoria, they've got some regional areas developing nicely. Mm. And just uh, GWS and the Swans both declining to enter uh, any bids for 2017's competition. Uh, not enough information running around at the moment, not enough criteria, you know, the same stuff we were talking about earlier. It was it was it was surprising to see that in a way. Um, I thought, to be honest, GWS would have been all over it like a bad rash. I thought GWS, who need as much attention on them as possible and more supporters through the game, because let's be honest, they've been struggling with supporter numbers. I thought the AFL would have said, um, "Here's a bit of extra dosh. We're going to help you get a women's side up because again, because you've got Auburn, Blacktown." and um, Penrith all doing well in Division 2, all of a sudden you've got this women's football that's taking off around the Western Sydney area. You'd be thinking for all money, every resource possible would be thrown at GWS to get their women up, to really get this thing burning and going. Um, but for them to decline, I, I think I think's a bad mistake, to be honest. Um, if Sydney came along and, and took the spot, it'd be understandable because they're the capital. Um, but, yeah, I, thought, I think GWS, if they've turned it down... I've heard one report 
with an unnamed giant spokesperson say they're interested, but no further details. But that would be – I think it's a grave mistake if the Giants are missing out. If you're in the, ARP, the, the AFLPR department, you must have GWS in. And at the same time, they'd cover off Canberra. And because they play games in the Canberra area, the ACT's had some great talent come out of there, such as Heather Anderson, the girl that plays in the pink helmet that played for the Western Bulldogs, uh, now based in Victoria, but a former Canberran in Aliso Day. They've got some great talent there in Canberra. And you're thinking the Giants' link with the ACT just makes them – guaranteed starter so again very strange if they haven't put their hand up i think it's a mistake not to have any side from new south wales in there whether it's sydney or gws well when we when we posed um about a month and a half ago and we had our what we called our uh, fantasy draft that if we held a draft today uh using the girls that have already been drafted so far who would end up where the the model that we based upon was Brisbane Lions in Queensland because we thought the Lions would be uh, shooing because they've been expressing interest since May. We thought West Coast was going to be in there. Adelaide because they've expressed interest. We had Melbourne and Footscray and we had the sixth team as GWS because we said it made the most sense. Hmm. Well, it'll be interesting, but uh, I think they're going to miss out if they're not in there in the first year. They've got to be in there. I think the only problem and the only headache, I guess, the AFL is looking at, and again, we don't know what's going on behind closed doors, is the situation of are they drafting or are they zoning? And until we get an idea of what they're doing, then we can understand the logic behind whatever teams they choose. So scooting across to the West Coast now, and uh, 2014's female participation was about half that of New South Wales at 28,000. 80 female club teams, 15 more than in 2013. I haven't got uh, 2015's players' uh, coaching figures, uh, club figures, sorry. We do know there were 2,000 club players in 2015, though, and they've got something of a female academy that they've started over there. And they're trying to get um, football going up in the north, like with Geraldton as well. Um, uh, they've got a lot of Indigenous female footballers, and they've got a good program happening there. But the one problem out of the WAWFL, it's two-division competition. There's only five teams in uh, the top flight in the league division, they call it, and it's terribly, terribly one-sided. Um, essentially, it's a race every year between Swan Districts and Coastal Titans. They're so far ahead of the other three, South Fremantle, East Fremantle, um, and I think Pill's the other side. Um, they're, so, they're so far ahead, it's um, yeah, it's not funny. Um, and, and this and this is a situation. I think they've tried to introduce a point system as well to try and balance things out. But um, they've got to sit down and have a look at that. Whether they um, tear the whole league to shreds and and try and align them with the WAFL clubs and reorganise it all. Um, or they just got to cross their fingers and hope that with youth girls, particularly like Peel Thunderbirds, have got a good uh, youth girls uh, system coming through. They just got to hope that the juniors, when they are coming through, are going to the other clubs and it all balances out because that that's why women's football is probably struggling for exposure as a competition in WA because two sites are so dom- dominant. The the only really good publicity they got this year was for when they played as a state and for the first time ever in the state's history defeated Victoria. Which would have been something of a shock to Victoria, I think. Well, well, yeah, I, I, I went across I went across and uh, covered that game for girlsplayfooty.com radio. Paid, I think it was almost a grand out of my own pocket to fly over and, and call the game um, with uh, Ashley Renshaw, who's a, a great young female commentator uh, who plays for the Coastal Titans, and Julie Nichols as well. That'll be a name you'll remember. She's looking for a special comments gig. Julie Nichols uh, out of the Sharks there. Um, uh, very cool head, described everything. She said that this was a very big moment for WA football. No one ever believed they said they could knock off the big V because no one simply ever 
had beaten Victoria at women's level. But they took them on. They led by 10 points with uh, a, a couple of minutes to go. Victoria had a shot on goal. Then they held out for the last 90 seconds. And um, the crowd of a couple of thousand there just went absolutely bananas. The girls in the commentary box virtually had tears down their, their eyes because they said they never thought they'd see the day they'd beat Victoria. And um, for, for many that were there that day... They said it was the best game of women's football they'd ever seen. They said it beat out the exhibition matches just for pure intensity and passion. And uh, if you ever get the opportunity, I suggest you get on YouTube and just search Western Australia versus Victoria 2015 women's match. And, um, yeah, it was generally a ripper. And uh, I'm not going to say the Victorians choked, but there's a couple of things they did there which they'll look back on the tape of and go, why did we do that? Mm. And finally, of course, South Australia. Um, well, obviously not forgetting Tasmania as well, but for the uh, for the South Australians, um, recent news out of there just last Wednesday, um, being the eighth uh, of December, they uh, dissolved their board. Um, so the SAWFL board is now fully controlled by Channel Nine Adelaide Football League, which, in other words, is the South Australian Amateur Football League. Uh, there's going to be an SAWFL uh, advisory subcommittee. But essentially, all the admin work, all of that's going to be looked after by the amateurs. Uh, what they've done, they haven't done like the Victorians. Uh, when the Victorian Women's Football League was uh, dissolved or uh, the, them running it was dissolved in uh, 2013 as a board, they handed everything, keys, logos, naming rights, God knows what. They handed over everything they had to AFL Victoria so AFL Victoria owned it all and run that. What, what the SA women have done, they've handed over the control to the ammos but their money and a few other things they've put aside, and I think it's only like maybe 20 grand in money, uh, but with a caveat that if they're unhappy with the amateurs and would like to start again, uh, they're able to withdraw that money out of a trust account and re-begin uh, under their own administration should they choose to do so. Um, things at the moment are virtually, though, being run by the Sandfall and Emma Gibson. They've got the whip crack. They've got the new pathway system set up. Um, what's happened there is now the juniors, this is the junior girls up to under 15s, uh, are going to be run uh, by the Sandfall Clubs. Uh, and then from under 18s up to senior women, it's going to be the current SAWFL clubs. That realistically will be a short-term thing. I'd be surprised if that structure lasts for five years. Uh, quite simply because, let's say, Let's say you're um, West Adelaide or South South Adelaide. They don't have a side of the SAWFL. If you're South Adelaide and you've got juniors and you're progressing these junior girls, you're putting all the time, money, investment, and looking after these girls. When they reach 15 and a half, 16 years old, do you want them going off and joining another club? You don't want to see your investment walking out the door and going elsewhere. You want them still playing under your banner And, of course, they still want to play amongst their friends. So it would be very, very likely, I see, that within five years that the Sandville sides will have under-18s and senior women. And the current SAWFL clubs, I wouldn't be surprised, like suburban football, if they fall back to more of an amateur level and are no longer the top flight. Mm. And what's the story in Tasmania there? Tasmania is interesting. They've only started playing women's football since 2007, and back then it was a two-team competition. Uh, It's now gone out to seven, and they've got even some more small rural teams like uh, Evandale uh, with the competition this year, East Coast Suns as well. It's the same old, same old at the top at the moment, the likes of uh, Glenorchy, Bernie up there as well. Uh, But what they're hoping for is more teams to join the competition to try and even out the talent. And they've already put in expressions uh, and expressions of interest out 
out there and the Tasmanian Football League have come back and said if they do get enough expressions of interest, they're going to split it into two conferences. So there will be a Southern Conference and there will be a North-Northwest Conference. So it'd be like the old days of the Tassie men, it, it being, Tasmania being split in half. So, um, and that will save some women three or four hours' drive. So you're not driving all the way from Burnie and Devonport all the way down to Hobart to play a game. So um, stand by for that. Uh, they've also, like sides like Evandale uh, in the Tasmanian League, they've also um, experimented like the Queenslanders did in playing twilight football, playing their matches straight after a men's match at around about quarter to five, five o'clock at night. And from all accounts, there's been anywhere from one or 2,000 people sticking around at these men's games watching the women play. So that's been really positive for Tassie football. But again, they need more sides in that competition to help out the teams that are down the bottom of the table that are copping a frightful flogging from the top two or three. Okay. Um... Just on TV stuff, I think there's a, a chance that the AFL might go the route that they've gone with the state competition in Victoria, um, where it's just one match a week broadcast and the AFL has to pay for it and basically the costs are met by advertising and whatnot uh, through the broadcast themselves. This this is an interesting um, thing, um, and it all comes down to how the AFL fixed it. I was particularly puzzled when they came out and they said, oh, they were looking at the season to start February, March, around NAB Cup time, and uh, end possibly around April, May. I thought it would have been more, so therefore not to disrupt the current state leagues. I thought it would have made more sense for them financially uh, and, and to do with TV schedules to run it um, during the AFL season proper, even if it was a shorter season. Uh, because the thing is, like we saw the Melbourne Western Bulldogs game, that was actually a fairly cheap affair to run because uh, these days, um, Seven and Foxdale virtually rent the same gear. I think it's Global Television that produced the coverage and it's just brandless Channel 7 Fox footy and added with their commentary and graphics. Um, so essentially, it would have been ideal to run it during the season proper because you've already then got the cameras in place at places like Eddie had in the MCG and you can play the games there. And, um, you know, all you're doing is just paying extra for the staff to set up a little bit earlier and stick around a bit longer. Um, by starting it at February, March, then all of a sudden you're raising the question of, well, are you not playing at Etihad? Are you playing at Country Grounds now um, to try and line up as curtain raiser to the men's matches? Or are you playing at your own standalone venues? And if you play at your own standalone venues, what is the setup cost? Like the VFL, where you've got to drag your own um, scaffolding. If, if you've ever seen a production of Port Melbourne, they literally bring out the scaffolding, whack the commentary box on it, have to set up the uh, cameras. They're there since 7 or 8 in the morning, and uh, the boys are cooking bacon and eggs out the back at 11 a.m. because it's a big setup to do it at those yeah. VFL grounds. So the question is, if they're doing it in the preseason, they could be doing it a more costly way, which you'd be wondering why they do that. And, and you might have smaller crowds. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit puzzling about why they want to start it that early where that doesn't make sense, where you think logistically wouldn't either Saturday or Sunday, the 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock time slot be perfect because you're letting us a curtain raiser into your main AFL coverage. If they start at February, March, they can run it as curtain raisers to the NAB Cup games. Well, that's, that's what they're hoping for. But the, but the problem is, as well, the temperature around that time of year. Um, we've known some very hot marches in the past. So what are you going to do if you have, let's say, for example, you've got a 7 o'clock night match. Uh, 7 o'clock night match, NAB Cup. Um, the, they need the ground cleared an hour before the game. A women's match will run for two hours, so the women might start at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. 
Now, you can imagine late February, March, you might be unlucky and get an absolute roaring hot day in the high 30s. And you're going to ask a woman to play a game of football starting at 4 o'clock when it's 35, 36 degrees? Mm, then you run the risk of postponing and seeing how serious they actually are about the competition. And, and exactly. I mean, okay, 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock might run into the news well and work well for TV scheduling. But again, as soccer has already found out this year, there was one game, was it, I'm not sure if it was in Perth, or somewhere in the somewhere in the country, where it might have been Sydney, where the, the temperatures were absolutely boiling hot and they had to postpone the game back a few hours. And that doesn't, you know, TV schedulers aren't too pleased when their schedule's mucked around by a sporting contest having to be delayed. So there are problems if you have it as a curtain raiser during February and March. The AFL also gets pretty much unfettered access to Eddie had when it wants. So it's... Um... But, but, and, but then again, is the problem that's been in the VFL Grand Final. Um, a crowd of... You know, let, yeah. let's let's say let's say seven or eight thousand. Let's hope for the best. Let's say seven or eight thousand turn up. It's equivalent to a VFL grand final size crowd. That looks fairly sparse at Etihad Stadium. And another problem with the curtain raises as well that was highlighted in the TV exhibition match by Etihad Stadium because of reserved seating. The seven thousand that came along to watch the Melbourne Western Bulldogs game had to sit on level three. So yeah. you can imagine if you look back at the vision. You think there was hardly anyone there. They're actually all up on level three. There's empty seats. Now, if you show that week in, week out of your competition, rows of empty seats, how does that look to the uneducated advertiser? That's why I don't think they'll do that. I think they'll go for local grounds. And, and exactly. And there's, and there's talks that maybe that, that this is, there's talks that they're tying it in with the VFL because they want the national competition, the Victorian clubs and the national competition to work with their VFL side. So that might save on production costs that you could have those two games back-to-back or one game's on the Saturday, one game's on the Sunday and there's less hassle of moving TV gear. You're essentially leaving most of the gear overnight. Well, it would suit the broadcaster somewhat. Mm. Uh, cause... But, 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 but there's, a long, there's a long way to go on that front. I mean, um, it, I mean if you look at the moment, um, none of the state league competitions have any live streaming of their game to begin with. And in fact, uh, when we did the radio call um, for the last year and a half of the Victorian Women's Football League, where the only radio call in the country. So at the moment, at state league level, there's virtually, you know, very little coverage. So this is a big leap from um, from virtually no coverage to now having to sort out grounds for women's football and have TV coverage. Just before we wrap up, international footballers. Uh, I know I've I've talked extensively to the Canadian uh, women's teams and uh, mm. the, the United States women's sides, and uh, Big Footy itself adopted one of the uh, Canadian women a couple of years ago. <laughs> Stupid barrel races, but uh, <laughs> we, uh, yeah. How do you? I mean, I talked to, uh, like I said, I talked to Brianna Brockaday for Queensland this morning. She mentioned that they have had uh, the odd Canadian woman come down, and uh, they they um, themselves interact with uh, PNG women up there occasionally. Um, how do you see the like, international, the chance of international participation coming into this? Well, this is a big, big, big opportunity being missed by um, the AFL. I mean, they're setting up academies in WA, New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria. That's all fantastic. That's great. That's what you've got to be doing. But the, the funny thing is, when people think about international football, they, they get sucked into thinking like the men, saying, oh, Australia, an Australian side would never play an international or another country side because they're so far ahead. And that's true because men's Aussie rules has been around for 150, 160 years. It's so far developed ahead of everything else. The women's game, though, realistically, women really taking it seriously 
have only been really taking it that seriously the last 10, 15 years and going from a social to a professional mindset. And the thing is, the USA's and the Canada's in that thinking, and even the Irish, aren't that far behind. Uh, there's currently some of their players that come across and play within, for example, the Victorian Women's Football League. At Diamond Creek, you've got, um, they call her Irish, Laura Corrigan, and she best on ground for Ireland um, in the um, recent International Cup in 2014. Absolutely murders. It does well off the back line uh, for Diamond Creek week in, week out, and had to take over the ruck duties during the finals this year. Uh, there's two Canadians uh, that play for the Eastern Devils. There's Amy Legault who was very, very unlucky to do her knee, do her ACL, because um, she was proving herself to be a great stopper. She was on Ali Blackburn. And uh, for those that remember Ali Blackburn, in the 20, um, 2014 exhibition match, she ran wild with possessions. She, Amy Legault went on uh, Ali Blackburn in the draft game uh, this year, to who would be selected for the exhibition matches, and virtually stopped her dead cold. Um, she went on uh, Moana Hope, which people might know as the Western Bulldogs women's full forward who keeps kicking bags of goals in the state league. Went on her in a, in a game, um, I think it was round three this year, and uh, until she went off with a knee injury, kept it at two goals of the game. Just absolutely put a clamp on her. A Canadian girl that she didn't do her ACL was guaranteed to be drafted. Um, a fellow Canadian, Kendra Heil, that also plays there as well. Speedy along the half forward flank. Another one not, uh, you know, just misses out on the draft. And you go, there's a few more of them over in Canada, Ireland, the USA, that realistically could be a shot with the proper training. But for some reason, the resources aren't being pulled in there. And you scratch your head going, the AFL for years have been trying to establish a foothold in those markets. Here's the women's game. This is the ideal opportunity to get a foot in the door. You'll get publicity in those countries, in those towns, because you'll be saying, hey, such and such has made it to the Australian Football League in in, uh, Australia. But for some strange reason, you know, you don't hear too much of them trying to bring over those girls to here, which would be, you know, even if they bring over a dozen, you'd think the, the money would cost the AFL would be, you know, loose change. Mm. It, 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 it's, it's, it's truly puzzling. I know there's a, I know there's a change.org petition online. I can't remember what the address is. Someone was actually suggesting that the women's version of the International Cup should be brought forth from 2017 to 2016 to give these women a chance to try and showcase their skills. So, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen, but it, it shows what's going on. It shows that, yes, there needs to be some type of talent identification in those areas to see if there's some women that are worthy of coming across and, and having a crack at the, um, the, the Women's National League. Well, it, it probably would be a good idea if they're going to go for a draft and everything. But indeed, it, indeed. I mean, even if, particularly, and I, I've brought up the idea with um, um, Darren Flanagan from AFL Victoria last year. We were just having a conversation in the car one day, and I, and I had a chat to him, and I said, you know, about the idea saying, at least for the exhibition matches, um, they said you should be introducing an international rookie, one or two per side. You know, what does it cost? $5,000 in airfares and accommodation to fly out one or two players for each of them? You know, and that'd be great publicity back in those countries, and you're, you're talking up your game. Mm. Uh, I, I, you know, it's very minimal outlay for what would have been, you know, a, a great little publicity kick, just like we've got with Brianna Davey when the Matildas goalkeeper played in that game. That was a nice little shot in the arm for publicity. Mm. Well, Peter, it's been great to talk to you about uh, women's football. Uh, oh, it, 
it's been a privilege and it's been great to see um, people um, going into bigfooty.com to the forum, going down to the women's footy sub forum. So if people want to know where it is, you just keep going down below. We've got all the clubs and it's around the regional footy area. Um, and there's also been some talking about the National League in uh, the Australian Football League forum section and then going into the footy industry all on bigfooty.com. So um, there's not just me. There's a, a few others around like Spooner, I know, is uh, heavily involved in uh, in footy in Queensland uh, who'd be able to tell you um, a lot more about women's football and happy to educate anybody on it, particularly if people want to get involved or even just go along to a game and follow it. Awesome. Well, folks, I've been talking to uh, Peter Holden, who is a commentator for girlsplayfooty.com. You can see his articles or go visit his website or hear him on commentary during the Women's Football League se- or the Victorian Women's Football League season. Thanks very much for your time, Peter. It's been a privilege and, uh, yep, yeah, look forward to a new season not too far away.